we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from our nation's capital. We are pleased to be joined today by... An old friend, Laurie Garrett. Laurie is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, and we just haven't had you on recently, Laurie, and I've been missing you. So I just thought, let's reconnect. And we are also joined by a new friend, David Wallace-Wells. David is a best-selling science writer and columnist for the New York Times. Hi, David. Welcome. I promise the reason that I am convening our most a new discussion on diseases and pandemics is not because I'm watching The Last of Us now. Okay, it's not entirely because I'm watching The Last of Us now. It's Although I every night, that's the image I go to bed with. But uh, there are a few big questions that are lurking around. And I just thought, rather than hearing the opinions of the uninformed, as I seem to hear exclusively on most media, I would go to you guys and ask you a couple of questions. The first question ties to the news because we had this report in which the U.S. government asserted that with low confidence, it believed that the origin of COVID was a lab leak. And I wanted to start with each of your reactions to that. Lori, go first. Well, are you aware that there's actually a report? I mean, we have the quote in the Wall Street Journal. But I'm not, I've not seen a report. Have you? Have I missed a report somewhere? I think that's a very important point. Because what happened yesterday, well, most people were watching the uh, lab leak debate in the House. The Senate was holding its annual uh, intelligence assessment with the leaders of all the intelligence organizations arrayed before the Senate panel or the committee. And in that, they stated unequivocally, as they did in the report, which was dropped yesterday, that the collective wisdom of the intelligence community is that there are two possibilities, and neither one is more possible than the other. So other than that, the FBI Director Ray has gone on the record and said 
the FBI assesses it to be a more likely, but still with low confidence, probability that it was a lab leak. We have no actual concrete evidence that any agency has reached a different conclusion. Yeah, I would go even further and say that to the extent that we understand what the basis has been for these various judgments, that the basic fact pattern has not really much changed over the course of the last year or two. It is now it now seems to be the you know conventional wisdom, at least among some people in DC, has moved a little bit towards openness to a lab leak origin to the pandemic, but there really hasn't been any news or new evidence reading between the lines of the news reports about these judgments by the Department of Energy and even the FBI. There doesn't seem to be evidence in there that we haven't seen yet either. And so we're really in the same epistemological gray zone that we've been for quite a while, where, you know, for my money, neither of these stories entirely adds up. If I look just at the um, narrative about lab leak, it has holes in it. If I look just at the narrative for natural origin, there are holes in it there too. And I, I don't suspect we're going to actually get anywhere final for quite a long time, if ever. That's a very strange place to be, given that this pandemic has killed probably 20 million people around the world. And because it does, you know, depending on which origin you believe in, raise really serious questions about how we should design policy going forward. But I don't think that what we've seen in recent weeks is a resolution. I don't even functionally think that it contains news, except to the extent that we're talking about a slight shift in the analysis go, and opinions of certain people within certain agencies. And say this in the Senate hearings yesterday, Avril Haines said, we have no capacity to obtain new intelligence from China. You know, China is an absolute police state with the, the greatest cybersecurity on earth. Every single citizen is under cyber watch at all times. To operate as a foreign agent inside Wuhan and somehow have in the last year or so garnered some special new intel that would provide smoking gun proof that it was a lab leak or find an animal that was infected that it was indicative of the chain of transmission. I mean, that's, it's unthinkable. It's absolutely unthinkable. If I were to make a wild guess and go out on a speculative limb, which I know you love for me to do, Mr. Rothkopf, I would say that someone at the Wall Street Journal, well aware that Biden had ordered the various agencies in his intelligence community to come up with some assessment about the origins of this virus, was wisely calling their sources in the various agencies, particularly holdovers from the Trump administration. And that one of those sources said on the phone, oh, we've got this great new memo we're sending over to the White House. Let me read this line to you, dot, 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 DOE assesses with low confidence. Now, that's not the whole report. That doesn't tell you the context of that line. That doesn't tell you even if the same line was said almost verbatim in reference to a zoonotic release. And so we're running off and now it's become the narrative that A, there was some new intelligence and B, that some agencies in the government have decided that all of this was the result of a Wuhan lab leak. And that is not the case. It simply is not. So I don't want to dwell too long on the lab leak, but I'm going to ask you one more question, David, because the reason that everybody is circling around the lab leak, or there are two reasons, is that there are political benefits that some people seem to think they can gain from one of two gotchas. 
So one gotcha is that there are a bunch of people who said they didn't think it was a lab leak or who played down the possibility, and they want to grab them and say, see, you were wrong about that. And the other is, if it's a lab leak, it sounds a little more nefarious and like the Chinese may have planned this whole thing. No evidence suggests that, I believe. But what do you think of the two gotchas? Do you think it matters, really, in terms of how we deal with this going forward, whether we ever find out the answer to this question? I think the answer really matters. I just am not very confident that we're going to get one. I think that there are also a lot of other gotchas or, or you know, political capital being exchanged here that we should be careful about. You know, the truth is that much of the anti-lab leak or much of the lab leak information that has been leaked over the last year or so from various agencies in the federal government has come from people who are operating from a sort of China hawk position in a landscape in which American politics is um, drawing a harder line against China than in the past. And especially given the fact that we seem to be dealing with evidence that we already had a year or two ago, the fact that we're just getting new assessments of the same evidence that, you know, put the probabilities a little bit higher and put a little bit more blame on China suggests to me that there's some geopolitical gamesmanship going on there. Um, and we should be sort of skeptical of, of all of that information. But that's not to say that the actual cause here and the actual responsibility is irrelevant. I mean, if this disease came out of a lab, which I think is, I would say personally possible, if not necessarily the outcome that I would, you know, the, the, the story that I would bet on, you're talking about 20 million deaths and a completely upended global order for a period of several years. I mean, this is a, un, would be an unbelievably consequential lab accident. It would implicate, as Laurie was saying, much of the Chinese government in the immediate aftermath of the, of the outbreak and how they handled things and how they shut down and made, them, made themselves much less transparent. There would be huge responsibility and questions about um, why they were doing the research they were doing um, under the you know, safety protocols that they were using. There would also be larger questions about the relationship of, the, of that research to American funding and American research oversight. Um, and that's another point I would make is that a lot of the sort of China grandstanding in Congress has like, you know, treated this as though it's, you know, if it came out of a Chinese lab, then it's China's fault. And, you know, I think if it came out of a Chinese lab, there's some American responsibility there too, because these, are, these institutions are so entwined. But I think going forward, it does matter in the sense of, you know, we want to calibrate how worried we should be about um, virological research. There's more of it being done in more places around the world now than was even at the beginning of the pandemic. Many of those new labs being built are being built in countries that have never had labs like this before, exactly how they're run, exactly what their research protocols are, exactly what they decide is worth doing and not worth doing. All of those standards are really important. They're probably important, even if this even if didn't come out of a lab, we should be worrying about lab safety in general. But if this did illustrate some of those risks in the most spectacular way, then it probably makes us think a little bit harder about how we should be running those operations going forward. So I think it's hugely consequential. I just think that it also happens to be the case that I don't see any reason to believe that we're going to come to a definitive conclusion anytime soon. And so as a result, we're going to be living with ambiguity and need to start thinking in those terms rather than waiting for definitive evidence to arrive. Okay. So that seems reasonable to me, but all your answers so far have seemed very reasonable to me. But I'll tell you some things that seem unreasonable to me, not associated with either of you, but just it's that we're sort of few years into this thing. And there's some things that haven't happened that I just can't understand why they haven't happened. Like, we've had no investigation into the United States and how our handling of this, the public 
health policy handling of this by the Trump administration when it was in power or the Biden administration since worked or didn't work, whether it caused deaths or didn't cause death. You know, you have over a million people die of something in the United States. There are some credible assertions that hundreds of thousands of them didn't have to die. And yet we haven't done any investigation of that. So that's one of them. And I'm feel free to add others to it. The other one, though, I had a conversation with a very senior U.S. government official not too long ago. And I said, so what are we doing to prepare for the next pandemic based on the hugely disruptive consequences of the, the last one, which David just sketched out pretty well? And he said, well, you know, we had this plan, but we have concluded the Congress will never come up with the money. So we're just not going to get it. So, so there is not going to be a plan for a next pandemic. There's not going to be standing up the capability to deal with the next pandemic. And this, this seems to me to be insane. Both of these things seem to me to be insane. So, Lori, you can either comment on my sanity or you can comment on either of those points. Well, first of all, we have gone through this with every single epidemic in recent history, in the, at least the last 50 years. After every single epidemic, we have after action reports. We have, we can't do this again. We have, here's how we're going to do preparedness. We need a pot of gold to be ready for the next time. We have a debate about equity and lack of equity and access to the tools for prevention and treatment. And then we forget about it and shove it all off onto a, f- a shelf somewhere as soon as things die down and we move on to other problems. And we've repeated this over and over and over again. In every epidemic I've been in, and I've been in well over 30, probably more than 40 of them now in my career, there has been a point at which there's a collective blame. Anger rises, usually fueled by politicians, and they start finger pointing. Rather than really dealing with how can we be better prepared, what can we learn from this episode, the kinds of things you were raising in your question, they go to who can we blame? For this episode, who's at fault? Uh, So that we can scream at them and say, it wasn't because of our incompetence. You know, we politicians didn't screw up and the agencies we love didn't screw up. This was all because of those bad guys. And then the, the third thing is that we always have a call for creating some kind of a pot of gold to be in anticipation of the next outbreak. And in fact, we've never even filled any of the targets for the current pot of gold to deal globally with this pandemic. As soon as any one nation feels, any one rich nation feels a sense of relief, they pull back from engaging in the international commitment. The other thing I would want to point out is that in past epidemics, we have dealt with gain-of-function research. We have dealt with uh, dual-use research of concern. We have dealt with synthetic biology utilization for creating alternative microbes. We have dealt with man-made viruses, including a mouse smallpox virus created and invented in New York State. We have dealt with all of these issues in the past, even though yesterday in the hearing, Robert Redfield lied and said there was no gain-of-function work done anywhere in the world until 2012, which is a big shock to me since I was in gain-of-function laboratories in 2005. And having been in the vector labs in Siberia and seeing what the Russians were up to going back to the 1980s, 
Having been inside of biological weapons laboratories in several places, several countries in the world, I mean, we've been effectively doing gain-of-function research for weapons purposes, not we, the United States, but other countries, other places as a humanity for a very long time. So we can ask the question, why don't we just fundamentally get to the bottom of this, develop an apparatus for monitoring, for accountability, for stopping microbes from leaking from laboratories, what have you? And the answer really, I'm, I'm sorry to say, comes down to that the Biological Weapons Convention was written before any of this technology was known or possible. I mean, when they were writing it back in 75, people barely really understood RNA and DNA and how they functioned in viruses. And so modernizing the, that key agreement and putting real teeth into it has been the subject of endless negotiations over and over. And I've been in some of them in Paris and in Geneva, and it always comes down to, nope, you can't come in our pharmaceutical labs. Nope. No foreigners coming in our military labs. No foreigners setting foot in our biotech labs. No foreigner is coming into our university prime research centers. Nope, no inspection shall be allowed. And who says that consistently? A bipartisan United States of America. And so here we are demanding somehow that the Chinese open up the Wuhan lab and we can send in you know, an army of inspectors from the CIA to go see what they were up to. We would never let. Chinese government officials into any pharmaceutical company laboratory, into any biotech laboratory. Uh, frankly, we're screaming about them even having access to our university labs. We wouldn't even let the UN into our, you know, into our military labs. I mean, this, yeah. Uh, David, I just wanted to pick up on something that you asked at the beginning of your question, which was about the failure of pandemic response this time around. I think this is really important um, to like contextualize and keep in mind. You know, we can point to a lot of political failures that happened in 2020. I can think of maybe a dozen <laughs> off the top of my head, you know, from Donald Trump to mistakes at the FDA and the CDC to mistakes governors made, you know, bad decisions early on, bad advice about masking and aerosols, et cetera, et cetera. We all know the list. When you look around the world, the US did worse than most of its peer countries in 2020, but not dramatically worse. It was on par with, you know, the UK, Italy, Spain, Portugal. We had a lot of death. But on a per capita basis, we were in the range of the countries that we consider our, um, you know, our compar natural comparison points. And where the U.S. has really fallen down um, in the pandemic compared to other countries in the world is actually not in year one. It was in year two and year three with vaccination. We've done a much worse job getting our country vaccinated. And many more people have died in this country as a result of that failure than of the initial pandemic response. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't have done better. In 2020, of course, I think absolutely we could have. But I think that it's also helpful to keep in mind the scale of these effects and interventions and to remember, well, first of all, how powerful the vaccines were and have been in limiting severe illness and death, how unprecedentedly quickly they were produced and rolled out, not just in the US, but all around the world, and how much more of an impact that can make than measures that we institute right at the beginning to limit transmission and spread. It's, again, not to say that we shouldn't be doing that at the beginning of an outbreak. Of course we should be. But when you're dealing with a truly native population, a tr truly immunonaive population, it's quite hard. And when you look around the world, there are not many countries that handled this well. There are countries in East Asia and Oceania that did a bit better than the countries across Europe and, and the Americas, to be sure. But nobody 
pass through this pandemic unscathed. And I think it's useful to keep that in mind as a baseline. We have a fantasy, those of us who live in the wealthy world, in places like the US, that we can perfectly and totally control and defeat threats like these. And I want to fight for that. I want to push for policy that will make that more true. But I also think it's worth keeping in mind that it is not really true. It was not really true in 2020. And there's probably some amount of um, humility that should go into our cultural response and policy response beyond just Trump screwed us. Well, but there's something there. And let me ask Lori and then and Dave Dietrich to respond, because there's also something between a public policy response and a cultural or a public response. And that is an organized counter response to the public policy response. And what we had in the United States and what we still have in the United States is an organized, politicized, mass anti-vax movement that clearly has had some effect on retarding the embrace of vaccines. And I'll tell you, I mean, anecdotes are, are, are not hugely useful, but I, I literally was sitting at lunch yesterday at a restaurant in downtown D.C., and the two people at the table next to me got into a fight over vaccines. And where the, one of them was saying, I would never have my family do this. We didn't vaccine. You know, we got the disease. If we invent a vaccine, we probably would have had the same thing. And the other guy was saying no. And, and so, the, you know, there, there, there is something different here. Let me which just is, jump in on that just to contextualize it a little bit. I, I, I don't want to take the mic from, from Laurie, but, you know, obviously there are, obviously there's a, a, especially around these COVID vaccines, there's been a right wing conservative resistance to vaccination. It plays out in our, in every measure, every statistical measure you could see, vaccination rates are considerably lower among Republicans. They're lower in Republican congressional districts. They're lower in Republican states. As a result, death rates in those places are higher. And, you know, all of that is absolutely true. It's also true that there are large vaccine gaps by income and by race and by education level. And I think liberals often fall into a trap where we talk about this as an ideological problem. We're letting ourselves off the hook for all of these other failures that go beyond um, narrow ideology. If there are poor Americans, Americans of color, poorly educated Americans who are nearly as resistant to taking vaccines as Republicans, that should maybe make us think about how casually we just say this is a, a matter of choice, an ideological contagion, and that it's a the infection of the, of the right wing. There are there are systemic problems with the way that healthcare is delivered in this country. People distrust public health authorities, not just on the right side of the aisle, but simply by virtue of being excluded from healthcare in the past, in the present, um, feeling disconnected and not looked out for by the country's elites. Those are all really profound problems too. And I I don't say that to say Republican resistance to vaccination is not a problem. It is. But I think that, you know, we have to take all these things together and understand that in this country, compared to many of our peers, we're doing worse, not just, you know, not just because of the bad behavior, sort of lethal misinformation um, that's been cultivated on the right, but because there are many other people in this country who are not defined ideologically, who are also uncomfortable taking these vaccines. And if we're one, wondering, especially going forward, how we're going to do better in a theoretical next pandemic. We might want to think just as hard about how to convert those people and make those people feel comfortable and reassured as we do about how to address right-wing resistance. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you because that's not what the data shows. 
the data shows that actually right now, African-Americans and Latinos are more highly, more likely to be vaccinated in states where the government is promoting vaccination than are white Republicans. And so we have to go to who's the leadership and who's making the decisions in a state. The mortality differential is very real. What you're saying, and I don't disagree with anything you said about the disparities in our healthcare system and the inadequacies in our system, but a lot of that, a lot of the mortality went to who had comorbidities that put them at risk very early in the epidemic. David, you must remember when I was on with you and Andy Slavitt about uh, two and a half, maybe three years ago, I was saying if we were in earnest about keeping people from dying, and this is before we even had the vaccine and we were just rolling out testing, that we should be testing everybody for hypertension and high blood sugar at the same time. And if they showed that they had untreated hypertension, we should roll them immediately into treatment, full scale, education, treatment, diet, everything. And similarly, if they showed up with high blood pressure, they should be rolled immediately into a diabetes workup and access to insulin. We never did that and we still don't. And we still don't see that the risk of mortality is tied to underlying untreated disorders that are pervasive in our society precisely for the reasons you were laying out are the paucity of equity in our healthcare system and of affordability in the system. But, you know, the other thing to think about is one country did have a resounding success in battling this epidemic up until recently, and that was China. And they had the lowest per capita, they had the third lowest per capita incidence and death rate on the planet until they opened up and eliminated their zero COVID policy. And then they discovered that a huge percentage of the elderly population of China either never got vaccinated or only partially vaccinated and not adequately protected. And so depending on whose databases you look at, they lost anywhere from one to two million people in just since uh, November in a very short period of time because they were inadequately vaccinated. And I think this goes to another problem that I've seen over and over again. I was in a diphtheria epidemic that sickened a quarter of a million children in the former Soviet Union and killed thousands of kids because of disinformation campaign. They all came from one person running a lab in St. Petersburg, not Florida, St. Petersburg, Russia, claiming that the diphtheria vaccine was toxic and would kill your children. And a lot of this woman's argument were very similar to what Andrew Wakefield subsequently started saying about the measles mumps vaccines, which led to the rise of our anti-vaccine movement well before COVID came along. And, you know, along came all these soldiers returning home from the war in Afghanistan to Russia, and many of them were carrying diphtheria, and they had this massive catastrophic epidemic. And if you've never seen a child die of diphtheria, you don't know what pain and agony looks like. Anybody who refuses to vaccinate their children for diphtheria is just a sadist, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that we have to keep in mind that with every single outbreak, there are lessons to learn. And with every single outbreak, the lessons are all forgotten. That is undoubtedly the case. This is the point where we take a break, say goodbye to the folks in the general public who've been listening to us, say, come back soon. And if you want to hear more, more about issues like this, and you become a member, then you can hear 
the special bonus content, which all our members will hear in just a moment. And if you're not a member, this is a good time to go to the DSR network and uh, click on membership and sign up. So we encourage you to do that. Until you do, thanks very much for joining us. Members, stand by.